0: Good evening. Um, Tonight's reading is from uh, page 1011. uh, It's Mark 8. It's the whole of the chapter. So page 1011 in the Church Bibles. Mark 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people, They've already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also, and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About four thousand were present. After he'd sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It's because we've no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand... How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man, and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man, a blind man, by the hand, and led him outside the village. When he'd spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking round." Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels.
1: Thanks, Mark. Who do people say I am? If, if Jesus asked you this question, the, the question that he asks his disciples in verse 27, who do people in Brighton and Hove say Jesus is? Some of the answers might be the same, maybe he's a prophet, maybe he's a teacher, a religious leader, or maybe a liar, a deceiver, a master manipulator, who finally met a violent end. And then what if Jesus turned to you and asked you the next question, verse 29, but what about you? Who do you say I am? So far in the first seven chapters of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been demonstrating his power, uh, power over death, over evil, over sickness, over creation. He's been demonstrating who he is. And as Ben hinted earlier, uh, that now is where it comes to a head, where Mark, the biographer, weaves together some more of Jesus' miracles, showing who he is, and some of his discussions with his closest friends, his 12 disciples, telling them who he is. But it's, let's not think of it as a miracle-teaching divide because, in a way, the teaching itself is a miracle as Jesus opens the spiritual eyes of the disciples, opens their eyes to see who he is. He helps a blind man see physically and he helps his disciples see sort of metaphorically. And, and we'll come to this later, but I think that the physical miracle is something of an illustration for the spiritual miracle. So the question for us this evening is this. Do you see who Jesus is? As we look at this passage together, let's pray that he will open our blind eyes. Um, I'm going to do that now as we start. Lord, we thank you for this monumental passage of scripture, for Mark who wrote it for Jesus who spoke these words and did these deeds. We pray that as he is present by, by his spirit now in, in our church, we pray that he will open blind eyes to help us see who he is. Amen. So we're going to see four things today about who Jesus is and why he came. And the first is this, um, and that's in verses 1 to 10. Oh, we've got all of them up there. Wonderful. Um, Spoilers. So, verses 1 to 10 shows that Jesus is the saviour of the world. Um, and as we, as we read through the first section of Mark 8, verses 1 to 10, we might, we might get a bit of deja vu. Um, large crowd. Jesus has compassion. There's nothing to eat. A small amount of bread and fish. Everyone is fed and satisfied. Several baskets of leftovers. Hang on. Haven't we seen this before? It's another fish sandwich event. And if you turn back to chapter 6, 30 to 44, we, we get the same event again. We've had it already. And actually, the, the earlier event in the gospel was 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. And this time in chapter 8, it's 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. So, so if anything, it's less impressive the second time around. So, so it begs the question, really, why bother keeping this bit in? Imagine you're Mark, you're writing an account of Jesus' life. A lot of it is going to have to be cut. Why keep these two almost identical miracles in? But if we play spot the difference, we'll see what's going on. Now, other than the numbers, there is one key difference, and that is the Location. The miracle follows on from chapter seven where Jesus has been going around some non-Jewish areas, some Gentile areas. He meets a Greek woman in a place called Tyre um, and he heals a deaf man in the region of the Decapolis, both Gentile areas. That is populated by people who weren't Jewish. And so at the start of chapter eight, it, it follows that he's probably in that area again. And some of the, um, some of the original Greek hints on that as well. The word for baskets is actually different. So we get the feeding of the 5,000 in a Jewish area. Then Jesus goes around some Gentile areas, and then he does a very similar miracle. And I think that's the key to understanding what Mark is doing in telling us the story twice, and what Jesus is doing by doing the miracle twice, so, earlier in chapter 7, Jesus healed some Gentiles and cast out some demons on an individual basis, which in itself is, is really shocking. But now he's branching out even further and he's caring, he is showing compassion for 4,000 Gentiles. He is acting out on a scale 4,000 times bigger what he did for that one individual Greek woman. He's making the points to 4,000 individual Gentiles that he has not just come for the Jews. Yes, he went to the Jews first, but he is the saviour of every single person who believes in him. And this is a massive turning point. Jesus is the saviour of the world. Not just Jews, everyone. Come, eat, wherever you're from, get a fish sandwich. Jesus came for people like you. This is really good news for me as someone who's not Jewish. And it's good news for you if you're not Jewish as well. Jesus is the Savior, not just of Jews, but of the whole world, Jews included as well. But the other question this, this story at the start of chapter 8 raises is this. Why don't the disciples get it? Picture this, you're one of the disciples, you're standing in a desert place with hungry people and no food, with someone who's just done an incredible miracle, multiplying bread for thousands of people. Don't you just start rubbing your hands with glee? He's going to do it again, isn't he? No, the, the disciples are standing there with the great bread multiplier, and they go, how on earth are we going to feed all these hungry people? How do we explain that? See, I don't think we can just dismiss them as, as stupid or as forgetful, because they're not just going to forget what happened last time, especially as they were the ones who physically gathered in the leftovers. You don't forget that easily. Now that they hadn't forgotten, they just hadn't understood. They need their eyes opened, Which brings us to the next thing we see about Jesus. He is the great optician. And that, look with me at verses 11 to 26. We start here with the Pharisees, the doubting religious leaders opposed to Jesus. And they come to him and they say, give us a sign. They ask him for a sign from heaven. Are you kidding? Where have you been? Have you not been here for the past seven chapters? The whole gospel so far is just packed full of signs about who Jesus is. And you come and ask for another one. What is there to say that this new sign will do anything more than the old signs did in terms of convincing them to believe? And I love verse 12. Jesus sighs deeply. You can just feel his humanity, can't you? He's just so frustrated with them. And he says, no sign will be given. But he doesn't just say no sign will be given to you Pharisees. He says, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. See, the Pharisees are unbelieving. They're hard-hearted. They're blind. They're refusing to believe the signs that Jesus has already shown them. And he is saying, Jesus is saying that this is a problem not just with them, but with the generation as a whole. Everyone is at risk of unbelief, blindness, and hard-heartedness which is why he goes on in verse 15 to say be careful watch out for the yeast of the pharisees and that of herod he's talking there yeast he's talking about the corrupting influence of them just as yeast subtly works its way into bread their teaching their practice their unbelief their preference of tradition over god's word can work its way into a community and so he says to his disciples be careful Don't let them lead you astray from belief. And so the disciples think, well, I'm not sure why he's talking about yeast, but I'm pretty sure it's got something to do with the fact that we didn't bring enough bread. To be fair to them, Jesus is being quite cryptic. But surely they shouldn't be worried about only having one loaf between 13 of them. We've just had feeding of the five thousand, feeding of the four thousand, the feeding of the thirteen should really be an easy one. Again, they're not being stupid. Verse nineteen and twenty show show us that they remember perfectly well what Jesus has done. They just don't see. They don't see who Jesus is. They don't see that he's talking about more than just bread. They don't see that the feedings themselves, even they are about more than just bread. They're about Jesus showing them who he is. He doesn't do it just to satisfy hunger. He's showing that he has the bread of life. He has something better than the Pharisees, better than Herod and their false teaching. He says, watch out for their yeast, their bread, and come to me for true bread, just as I gave bread to those people in the wilderness. So when they start thinking about the loaf in the boat, Jesus says, no, no, not bread. More than bread. Don't you see? Don't you see? Verse 18, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? You can just sense the frustration in his voice, can't you? It's about more than bread. It's about a rescue. They need Jesus to open their eyes. Just to take a, a brief side note here, I think, I think a lot of Moldovans have the same spiritual blindness that the disciples have here. They may be religious, they may believe in God, but they relate to him more as someone who gives them bread and nothing more. They'll pray to him, or more likely they'll pray to a saint, for health, for wealth, for provision. But but the bread of life? No, I'll, I'll, I'll look for that elsewhere, thanks. in In money or... Success or alcohol for a lot of Moldavians. I need God on a Sunday. I'll come to him with a little prayer every once in a while. I'll just leave it at that. And maybe that's the same for some of us here this evening. In which case, let me say that Jesus is so much more than just a, ma- a magic bread maker. Yes, he can provide for you and He will. But he can give you life to the full if you'll only turn to him and let him be Lord of your life. And he wants to open your eyes so you can see him for who he really is. Jesus is the great optician who opens eyes and he's about to give a new pair of glasses to his disciples so that they can see. Um, I-, I went to the opticians a few weeks ago, not the great optician but the optician in Specsavers and uh, I got these, these are my new glasses um, and uh, they help me see a lot better than my old glasses did um, wi- without these at all without any glasses I can't really read what's on the balcony over there um, and, and with these yeah it's very clear, this is love, not that we love God this isn't an eye test, um, let's move on from that, but these are my old ones these are okay but they're 10 years old and Jesus is about to give glasses A to his disciples, the okay ones. It's going to take till the end of Mark's gospel for them to get the really good glasses. They're about to see a little bit of who he is, but they're not about to see him properly for a while. And Jesus is about to act out this sort of two-stage healing of sight, two-stage giving of sight, healing of blindness... Um, He's about to act that out as he heals a blind man. Um, And we're going to skirt over this bit somewhat um, as we're going through the whole chapter. But what's important is that this man is healed in two stages. Do you see that? Jesus tries once, verse 23, um, to heal the blind man. um, But he sees a bit better. It's better than blindness, don't get me wrong. But he sees people who look like trees. So sight's not perfect here. But the second time, um, verse 25, he sees everything clearly. And now we know that this isn't a lack of power on Jesus' part. Uh, It's it's not that this was a really tricky thing and he needed two goes. Um, The bread was a par one miracle, this one's a par two. No, it's not that. We know that Jesus, if he wanted to, could have done it in one. But he does it in two. And I think what Jesus is doing is he is illustrating that there is a kind of sight that is not full sight. There is a kind of seeing that isn't complete seeing. You can see partially without seeing fully. And that's what's about to happen to the 12 disciples. If you look at the points on the screen, the third thing we see about Jesus is that he is the Messiah. That's what the disciples see now. But later he adds on that he is also the sufferer, the Messiah who has to suffer and die. And the disciples don't get that yet. They've got, they've got glasses A, not glasses B. It'll take them until the end of Mark's gospel for them to get glasses B. But Jesus does tell them now. So let's, let's have a look at the third thing we see about Jesus, verse 27 to 30. And that is that Jesus is the Messiah. Back to our question at the start, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. Yeah, yeah, okay, interesting what other people think. Now what do you guys think? The you there in the verse 29, what about you? That's a plural word, so Jesus is asking them all. It's like the teacher standing at the front of the class saying, what does everyone think? What do you all think? He's waiting for one of them to reply, and then Peter pipes up, he looks back, he thinks back through what he's seen Jesus do. Remember his baptism, his miracles, his authoritative teaching. He can't just be a prophet. He can't just be a prophet. He he's the prophet, the promised one, the king, God's ruler who will defeat our enemies and rule the nations, the one to sit on David's throne and Peter can't hold it in anymore and he bursts out, "You are the Messiah the promised king God's chosen one let's not ignore how amazing this is it's it's amazing that it's true but it's also amazing that Peter got it a few minutes ago he was scratching his head about loaves and fish and now he's finally twigged who Jesus really is when nobody else has how because he's spent a lot of time with the great optician Jesus has opened his eyes and I wonder, has Jesus opened yours? Have you seen who he is? If you want to see him, can I encourage you, there's no better way than to keep reading Mark's gospel and keep coming along to these services to hear, hear what Jesus has to say. Every major worldview has to come to a conclusion about who Jesus is. A prophet, a criminal, the Messiah. Keep looking into it and... Pray that your eyes will be opened to see him. Who do you say I am, says Jesus? Who do you say I am? And if you're a Christian here tonight, you probably find that question quite easy to answer. You're the Messiah, Jesus. Easy to say, yes. But how does that cash out? Is Jesus king over your life? When your family, your friends, your neighbors look at you, do they see someone who has Jesus as number one in every decision or just just for a little bit, just for a Sunday? Let's, Let's go back to Peter and the rest of the 12 because, as we said, they've not got the whole thing yet. They've got glasses A, not glasses B. At the moment, they see Jesus as the blind man saw people, kind of vaguely, not clearly at all. And They need glasses B, and and we see the effect of their partial blindness now, because Jesus now reveals that he's not only the Messiah, but also the sufferer. It's in verses 31 to 38. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. And Peter says, "No, no, 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 Jesus, that's not what the Messiah does. I, I think you've got it a bit wrong here. Come, on, come on, let, let me fill you in." And Jesus' words to Peter are pretty strong. "Get behind me, Satan." You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, Peter thinks that the Messiah's job is to ride into Jerusalem in a a blaze of glory, drive out the Romans and restore the glory days of Israel, defeating their enemies and bringing them under God's rule and blessing. Which, to be fair to Peter, does sound pretty good. But the Messiah can't do any of that if he's dead especially not if he is publicly executed by the Jewish leaders themselves. No way can he be hailed up as the, the savior of the Jews if the Jews hate him enough to kill him. So Peter takes him aside and says, Jesus, this can't be. But the thing is, Jesus has got something bigger in mind. Something way, way better than defeating the Romans. Jesus' mission is to defeat sin. Sin. To pay the price for all the wrong things that we've done that separate us from God. And to do that, the Messiah has to die. The Son of Man must suffer. What kind of Messiah is Jesus? What kind of king is he? He's a sufferer, a king who dies. And that is so much more wonderful than a king who came to drive out the oppressing army. God's chosen king came to suffer so that we could be forgiven. Do you see who Jesus is? Do you see this Jesus? Do you see what he's done for you? One thing we saw in Moldova is that a lot of people in Moldova don't see who this Jesus is. When we visited last year, we met a man who ministers to a lot of older Moldovans, people living in the villages who are nearing the end of their life. And it becomes so clear when they face death that they have no certainty that God has forgiven them. No hope, no knowledge of grace, no understanding of Jesus' death. They see him as, as an example, as a holy king robed in gold who demands their worship but doesn't care about them. They, they've lived their, life, their whole life going to the Orthodox Church but have never understood grace, God's free, undeserved forgiveness for people who have rejected him. That is the good news of Jesus the sufferer. He came and he died so that we can be forgiven. We don't have to earn it. It's all grace, all because Jesus the Messiah Is also Jesus the sufferer. But that doesn't mean it makes no difference to us. Grace doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing. Because if this is who Jesus is, if this is what he's about, then surely that shakes up our ideas of what it means to follow him. I think that's what Peter was thinking. Jesus, I thought you were the conquering king. I was imagining riding to victory on a white stallion at your right hand. Uh, What you're imagining sounds pretty humiliating. And so for me to associate with you, well, well, I've got to be humiliated and to humble myself too. And it sounds like I might be killed just like you. Might I? Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Just listen to him now. Verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. For whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. It's not about glory, it's about being prepared to die. Roman criminals who were condemned to die by crucifixion would carry their own crosses. Taking up your cross means getting on the path to your execution. But when Jesus says take up your cross, he says take up your cross and... Go that way. No, he says, take up your cross and follow me. He leads the way. He carries the cross first. Because that's how Jesus died. Carrying his cross. He does not ask anything of us that he is not willing to do himself. But we must carry it too. J.C. Ryle uh, a Christian leader and a writer from the 19th century, writes this, salvation is undoubtedly all of grace. It is offered freely in the gospel to the chief of sinners, without money and without cost. But all who accept this great salvation must prove the reality of their faith by carrying the cross after Christ. The words of our Lord are plain and unmistakable. If we will not carry the cross, we shall never wear the crown. And there is a crown. Look again at those verses. Jesus makes it clear that it's not just suffering for the sake of suffering. We lose our life now, we gain it later. On the other hand, if we gain the world now, we forfeit our soul. It's this call that sends people... To share the gospel with cannibal tribes in Ecuador. To go to Islamic states in the Middle East. To Moldova. To the homeless on the streets of Brighton. To the international students. To the atheist next door. To the agnostic at college. It's this call that sends people to lose their lives for the gospel. Wherever and however that might be. Do you see Jesus? Do you see who he is? The saviour of all people, the great optician who opens eyes, the Messiah, the promised king, and the sufferer who calls us to suffer with him. Do you see? Let's pray that we'll see him as he is and do what he calls us to do as we follow him. Our Father, we thank you for this good news that Jesus the Messiah is Jesus the sufferer, that he's the savior of of Jews and of Gentiles, that he can open our eyes to see him. Lord, I pray that you will do that for each of us here tonight and that you'll help us to see the call that you have on our lives to take up our cross and to follow and help us to do that in the confidence that you have borne our sins already. We praise you for that. Great forgiveness you've won for us. And pray that we'll respond in love and dedication to you. In Jesus' name, amen.